For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When asked, most people would probably say that John 3.16, the verse that I just quoted to you, is the most popular quoted verse in the Bible. It's, I think, largely been true. I think in recent years it's been surpassed by Matthew 7.1, do not judge. But uh, with that, I think, probably being an, an exception, John 3.16 is the most well-known and certainly maybe the most beloved verse for many in the entire canon of Scripture. And really, there's not a reason that I can think of why it shouldn't be. No reason it shouldn't be an often quoted verse. It's wonderful, thrilling, and life-giving. It shows the great love of God for sinful man, promising hope of eternal life. Yet, as with the other texts of Scripture we've seen uh, in this class, uh, I have to wonder, a verse so quoted, so used, do people really understand what Jesus meant when he said it? Or what John meant when he wrote it? How they understood it? Well, you tell me. What, what's the sense so often that we that you get when people quote this verse? How's it understood? Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly uh, a major emphasis uh, of uh, use and interpretation that people say, whosoever, right? And the argument is done and over. Um, it's just stressing the free will of man. Yeah, it goes back a little bit to what we, uh, the ideas we visited from First John, that idea of of love. We, we hear love, and, and as humans, we, th- we have very specific, I think, ideas and definitions of what that is, what that means. And so God is love. God loved the world. Therefore, he certainly could never judge the world because those two things are mutually exclusive in the minds of, of some, I think. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, when I first was introduced to Calvinism, I always had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. Um, but it was always, um, it was always like a dirty person, you know. And at the time, I remember it was so compelling an argument to convince me. I was thinking about this the other day, but as I read that, I'm just like, I don't, I don't get the argument. I don't understand it. Hmm. 
Hmm. Yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah. The idea that God loves everyone everywhere the same way. Hmm. Yeah, they uh, sort of. It's they um, they couple it with Romans ten nine, at least the first part. You know, God so loved the world, He gave His only God's Son. If you believe in Him, you shall not perish. Paul said, if you confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. You know, kind of. But that idea of what is belief? What does it mean to believe? How does one come to believe? Is a major, uh, I think, issue with this text. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That uh, uh, James, right? You know, you, you say that there's one God. Well, like, great. Good for you. De- the demons and the devil, they believe that too. Um, and so we have to consider what it's not, I think, and from the outset, I just want to say that uh, this verse is so used, not necessarily misused at this point, I'm just saying just so used, so well known, that everybody, I think just, we have this sense that we understand it, right? Because from day one of being a Christian almost, you know, that's, you, you know, and can quote and can throw John 3.16 at anybody, and so we always feel like we have this sense about, I know exactly what it means. But John is not some kind of obscure writer, but he's a good writer. And uh, not necessarily everything that he says has only the surface possible meaning of, of what you might think. And so I think that's why this verse is so, why it gets so misused, is because everybody and uh, his uncle has, you know, a very specific interpretation and a very invested interpretation of what this means. I mean, this text is important. It's not a sort of sort of sideline kind of issue. We're talking about concepts of the love of God and being saved, not perishing. It matters to people that they know what that verse means. And so... Uh, it is, though I do think it's, it's, it's a little more complicated than people are willing to give credit for. And so, any other thoughts before we move on on that? If you have someone I want to... Okay. So, yeah, the idea, basic sort of, if you were to sum up a lot of people's understanding of this verse, so something like this. God loves every single person in the world in the same way, so stinking much that he gave his only son, that everybody who would believe of his own, own free will would not perish, but, would not have, but he would have everlasting life. That's that kind of idea. 
while it's useful, it can be to, um, to talk about wrong uses of the text, I don't want to really necessarily do that this morning. We've kind of gotten the ideas out there, but rather than necessarily approaching every single wrong idea that someone's had about it, I'd rather just consider what is actually being said here. So rather than negatively um, trying to uh, whack-a-mole all of the wrong interpretations, I thought, why don't we just shoot for the right one, positively asserting what we believe the text to say uh, as best we can, and then uh, hopefully that will help us. So, uh, I do want to very briefly uh, ask God's help uh, one last time uh, for this because I do feel somewhat unprepared, not unprepared, unworthy maybe, something, I don't know. So let's pray. Almighty God, grant to us now your servants clear minds and open hearts. Help us to see your word clearly, to interpret it accurately, that it may lead to deep experimental Christianity in our own lives, rather than cold and hard orthodoxy. In the name of the Son who was given for us, amen. John 3.16 occurs... At the end of a con- toward the end of a conversation that Jesus is having with a man named what? Nicodemus. And I think it'll be useful for us to read uh, that conversation and then following on through verses through verse twenty one. So I'm going to read John three one through twenty one. It's a little lengthy, but it's super important. I think putting the verse in its context. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone does wicked things. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so, what's happening here? Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cloak of night for a chit-chat, and he but Jesus says things that just, you know, mar- that cause Nicodemus to marvel. He's, he's this great teacher of Israel. He's this rabbi. He's in the Sanhedrin. He's, he's this supposed to know it all. And he comes to Jesus uh, thinking, it's hard to say exactly what he was thinking, but Jesus with just a few words completely bewilders him. He's completely lost. And Jesus responds with the similar surprise that this man seems to be so clueless. But he says that this idea of being born again, while it seems perhaps impossible, unclear, unsure to Nicodemus of what that is or how it's even possible, there is hope. Jesus says that though the wind blows as it wills, the one, those who look on the sun will have life. For as the serpent was lifted up and those in the wilderness looked to it, they received life from their physical wounds. They were dying of snake bites Those of us dying from, uh, who are spiritually dead in the wilderness of this world may look to the sun and have life as well. And then he says in verse 16, 4. Verse 16 is the ground upon which what's above that rests. Uh, one of my favorite things in college was, I don't remember what professor who said it, but we always ask the question, what's the, the therefore, therefore, or what's the for, or therefore, therefore, and so you ask, what's this for doing here? Uh, and that's something that we miss when we, when we hear this verse quoted, even though often we hear, probably have the word for in there, no one has any idea, or at least not in the way they use it what it's there for and why there is a for there. And so we rip it right out of context. Well, the life, or this for, sorry, tells us that life only comes to sinful men by the Spirit as they look upon the Son for the forgiveness of their sins and that it is the love of God that has brought about such 
a reality. Well, what then, (laughs) the great question, does it mean that God loved the world? There are there are two, uh, at least two different uh, possible senses when it says, for God so loved the world. Uh, there are two things that John could, could be communicating there. When, we, when you hear that, when you hear the phrase, God so loved the world, what do you think is being said? What's that so communicating? What's the effect of the So. So, yeah, so very much. He loved it so much. So that's one option. That the the word translated so there is is, it's emphasizing the degree to which God loved the world. Right? But it could also be um, manner, something like that. So for God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. I'm inclined to take the, the second of the two for the following reasons. Uh, in every other case where John uses the, that word in his gospel, it's, it's never a uh, so of degree. This would be the only time in the gospel of John where uh, this word would be so very much. All the others are this sort of, it either refers to like the kind of thing that comes, it's like a comparative sort of word. It's either what comes before or something that comes after. So he loved the world um, thusly, maybe you could say. So that's one reason. The other reason is that going on to 17, 18, 19 and following that the rest of the passage seems to carry that sort of, that sense of purpose, that sort of explanatory um, nature to what's being said. And so the idea is that Jesus says that God, he loved the world, and he did it in this way, that he sent his son. And God's love is obvious because he didn't send his son into the world, he says, to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. So I do grant, however, that both translations are possible, um, and it doesn't necessarily ultimately affect what's being said here. This is not really the place of stumbling for most, whether it's so very much or he loved the world in this way. But I think it's helpful to consider just that um, I think there's this emotional appeal that people make with the so very much, right? He, that God is just, he's so in love with the world that, that he did this. And so it, it, it sort of packs that invested emotional punch. And so if, like I think, that's not what's being said, then it, it changes the, the sort of um, climate of the room, I guess. Questions about that or comments? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we we were um, we're moving that way to talk about world, but yeah, that's certainly a, a, a an issue. There's several different things, and that we talked about. Yeah, good, great question. Yeah, mom. Yeah, and I I don't think that uh, you know it's cer- it's po- it's certainly possible that what John is saying or what Jesus was saying was stressing the the degree, emphasizing the intensity of the love that God had for the world. Um, it would just be a I, I guess a grammatical sort of uh, it would be unusual because in I think like it's four. Only 14 times does John use the word in the, in the gospel, but... No. Yeah, that's fine. So there's... Um, the Greek word is hutos, and so it can be translated a couple different ways. Either like so much, so emphasizing degree. God loved the world so much. He so loved the world that he did this. That's one, and probably generally the way that it's understood. Um, the other way is uh, you could translate it, for God loved the world thus. He loved the world in this manner. He loved the world in this way. And then I'm going to tell you what, how he loved it, by sending his son. He loved the world in this way that he sent his son. So those are the two basic options. Yeah. And so, but either, I, I really just point that out just to, uh, just to kind of give you the sense that um, uh, it's possible that, um, that we allow uh, this sort of, like Jeff, you know, you were saying, that kind of emotionally charged language to, uh, to rule our interpretations. And I do think, it, if I'm right, it, it gets to that idea of the, the man-centeredness of man. Um, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So, I hope I didn't, like, wildly confuse anybody with that. No, we're good? Okay. (laughs) Okay. Who, then, did God love? The world, says Jesus. Well, the word world can be and is used different ways in the New Testament. Could be the universe, the physical universe and all that's in it. Uh, Acts 17.24. You can just, we don't have time to read these, but you can mark it down if you want. Um, uh, Revelation 8.3, it's probably referring to the earth. Um, and then there's like the evil system of darkness that is arraigned against God and his people. 
Uh, we see that in Galatians 6.14. I'm crucified to the world, the world to me. Uh, just, rec- just the world, cosmos could be people on the planet. And so there's all these different ways that the, the word can be used. And that, in this issue, or in this text, I think is one of the issues, is that how is John using it? Well, it's difficult to say. Uh, he uses the word world uh, some 78 times in about 57 verses in the gospel. And he uses it in about every way and probably beyond of the, what I just mentioned a moment ago. And so I think uh, D.A. Carson um, it makes a helpful comment on what uh, John means here. He says, Jews were familiar with the truth that God loved the children of Israel. Here, God's love is not restricted by race. Even so, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. That is the customary connotation of cosmos, the Greek word translated world. The world is so wicked that John elsewhere forbids Christians to love it or anything in it. First John 2, 15 and 17. There is no contradiction, though, between his prohibition and the fact that God does love it. Christians are not to love the world with the selfish love of participation. God loves the world with the selfless, costly love of redemption. And so, precisely what John means here, it is true. God has a love for the whole wide wicked world that motivated him to act on behalf of that world. But, when you consider the people in it, as uh, Nick said earlier, does, does God love every person in the world in the exact same way? No. We don't love, I mean... We can't love everybody in the same way, and we're not faulted for that. I think, too, the idea of the love of God becomes so sometimes confusing to us is because we are humans. We are human beings, finite, sinful creatures, and we have an impossible time sometimes wrapping our minds around what it means that God loves. That God, who is not a, uh, you know, a mood-swinging, passionate person like we are, that God can love and hate and be all sorts of things in a way that is foreign to us, that we're not sure of. And so... Precisely what it means that God loves the world, I think, is that people are noted here. I don't think he's talking about just the elect here. I think there is a a benevolent love that God has that motivates him to make the free offer of the gospel. Christ is offered to the world. 
And as we'll see in a second, anybody who takes him can have him. If you want Christ, he's yours. Questions? Josh, you Give me a second, Mark. Uh, Adam. Yeah, and that's, that's good because what he had just said was he talks about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness and we see, and then he says, so the Son of Man is lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I'm not just talking about Jews though, Nicodemus, because God loved the world. So, Mark.
I think it's super important that we don't, as in that sort of Calvinistic camp, that we don't become the people who doubt and impugn the sincerity of God, that we aren't, uh, we don't view God as this kind of capricious, like, um, like insincerely offering people anything, and that, that, that it then leads us to say, well, what's, what's the point of evangelism or whatever if, if, if God's really not interested in uh, certain people being saved or whatever. That, that God is, use it like, I don't know if that's what you are laughing at, sincere. <laughs> is that what you're laughing at? No? Okay. But, um, yeah, Mm-hmm. When we can read it clearly and plainly what it says, that we don't try to reinterpret the clear meaning of it in light of what we understand outside of it. So instead, I want to look at this and say, what does, it says God so loved the world, so what, what does love mean in light of what I understand love to be, biblically, and how God loves people? Do I understand there's a, a love that God has for all men in all places and all times? Yes. Yeah, that's great.
Just got a few minutes left, but um, do you have some? Oh. Uh, so, what then did he do? Right? God loves the world in this way that he gave his only son, that for the purpose of people being saved, not perishing. So, the question then who are the people that get saved and who are the people that perish? And, I mean, really, that's what some, a lot of this boils down to is, is the debate over, how, you know, how is someone saved? What's the difference between being saved and perishing and, and those kinds of things? And uh, in, in all translations, pretty much, where it says that whoever or whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I get the sense that there are folks out there that think... If you just beat and pound on the word whoever or whosoever, that it somehow changes the meaning of it. Like, I don't know any, like, serious Calvinist person who doesn't agree. Absolutely, yeah, whoever believes will be saved. But somehow, that's, that's the word, right, whoever, like, that always gets thrown in our faces. There was a, a video clip that I wanted to show you, but I think with time and it would have been sort of out of context, but there was this guy just, he, he gets towards the end of his sermon and he's really not making any sense because he, I don't, he's just, I think, too fired up. And, and then he, he ends by saying that, uh, he says, um, when, when we're all, you know, when we're in heaven, I guess, you know, he at least would say that, so I don't think it's true that he thinks that, but maybe Calvinist or in heaven or whatever, that you're going to see me standing on my hands and all this weird stuff. And he says, and I'll be screaming that he died for all because he's a whosoever will kind of God. And then he just like, he just ends and, you know, kind of walks away. And I'm like, what in the world is... But that, the word whoever doesn't, doesn't help. Like, doesn't, that's not the issue we agree. That's not the point of debate and contention, that whoever believes, right, will be saved. That's what it says. It's the part of believes that's the issue. You must believe to be saved. You cannot be saved if you do not believe. And the issue then, I think, turns on the question of how does one come to belief? How do I get faith? Do I muster it up within me? 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, what is belief and how do we come to believe is, is huge in this. Um, I think that for most who I, who I get it wrong, I think the basic assumption that many even evangelical Christians make is that most people, when given the choice, would choose to believe in Jesus and go to heaven rather than reject him and go to hell. I think our fundamental natural assumption, presupposition, belief is that we are rational people and because of that, given the choice, we'll make the right decision. But, do you have something, Joe? Yeah, well, finish your thought. But, we know that that's not true. I mean, how many times do we, even as Christians, make the wrong decisions? The natural man doesn't understand the things of God, doesn't have any interest in the things of God, doesn't want the things of God, doesn't want God. And it goes back, it's that, that autonomy. That since the garden, we have sought our own self-rule, we've sought our own agenda, our own plans, our own ways. We've turned aside from what God has said, and we have pursued our own desires, that our wills are captive by our nature, that we are sinful human beings, born in sin, dead in Adam, that apart from a sovereign, gracious work of God, just like the wind coming upon us, we are not going to want anything to do with Jesus. And, I mean, if that's not plainly obvious, if you just look at the world around you, no matter what time in world history you live, but just look at society, people don't want God. You have something? Um, verse 36, whoever uh, believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. All right, well, um, we're pretty much done. So I just want to conclude with a thought about um, some 
ex- uh, uh, we use the word experimental or experiential. Uh, we're, not, we're not interested in purely academic, cold kind of orthodoxy, but we want this experimental religion, Christianity, where we are living in fellowship with God. So how do we, what's the ap- application here? It's fancy words for application. So is John 3.16 a text that uh, Reformed folks should avoid like the plague? No. May it never be. God indeed does love the world. He did give his only son. It was for the purpose not of condemning the world, but saving the world. And anyone who believes in the son will have life, life everlasting. He will not perish. But woe to those who do not look to the son. Woe to him who continues to love darkness and his own wicked deeds. For the wrath of God remains on him at this very moment. And so the consequence, it's not uh, necessarily the consequence, but the, the foundation of misunderstanding this text, like I said, is that God becomes a helpless onlooker in the salvation of, of men. I think is, is in st- strongest terms possible probably, but that is an underlying assumption that comes to misunderstanding this. He is the helpless onlooker, not the sovereign Lord. Man is exalted to a place of supremacy. Man lives and resides at the center of the universe. Our, our desire for self-rule, determination, produces certain presuppositions in our hearts about the nature of the world, religion, man, God, and salvation. We've let ourselves believe that the, wor- the world turns and resol- revolves around us, And so, since man is the most valuable being in the universe, we must read our Bibles and formulate our doctrine in that light. Right? That's the way that it goes. And so, God is a sovereign Lord. He has seen fit to give up His Son to redeem a people unto Him. He redeemed a people that that did not nor do not deserve that redemption. Although there are, our hearts love darkness rather than light. But we were brought into the light. And so let's not live man-centered. Let's not have a man-centered religion and produce man-centered theology that skews our interpretation of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, when man is central, you are peripheral. When man is big, you are small. Help us, God, to understand this text, to apply it accurately. Help us to love it, to be moved by it. I pray that through it, you would call many sinners unto yourself. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.